everyone, and welcome to Chowhound's Table Talk podcast, where we chat with some of the most influential names in the food space. I'm your host, Hannah Ospring. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chowhound's Table Talk. I'm so excited to welcome our next guest. You may recognize her from her 16 seasons on Bravo's Emmy-nominated Top Chef, or Iron Chef Canada, as one of its firm but always fair judges, or perhaps you know her from her work as Food & Wine's Special Projects Director, where she's helmed for years the Marquee Culinary Summit, the Food & Wine Classic in Aspen. If you haven't already guessed, we have Gail Simmons with us today. The Toronto native has a passion for food, obviously, but also travel, and she loves nothing more than to bring all of those culinary experiences back home into her Brooklyn kitchen, which is exactly what she did in her first cookbook, Bringing It Home, Favorite Recipes from a Life of Adventurous Eating. I'm so happy to welcome one of my favorite Canadians to our program today. Welcome, Gail. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here and talk about all of your current projects as well. Um, Now, Gail and I have known each other for many years now, and I have to kick this off by letting everyone uh, know how nice and normal Gail is in real life. She's one of the most down-to-earth celebrities I know, despite the glitz hair and makeup you see on screen. She's also a kick-ass cook, and I know you get this asked a lot. So I want to give you the floor here to let everyone know just how capable you are in the kitchen and you're not just a judging bystander. I don't, I'm not just judgy, although I'm a little bit judgy. No, that's not true. I'm actually really (laughs) not judgy at all. Um, I'm probably the most easygoing eater of anyone. In fact, my husband and my children are way pickier than I am. Are they? Well, you know, I've created monsters. No, that's not true. Um, I I mean, I love to cook. I've been cooking my whole life. But, you know, certainly my entire adult life, my entire working life has been centered in the kitchen Um, from really from the end of college uh, when I realized that that's what I wanted to do. I've been cooking and writing about it and talking about it and eating, lots and lots of eating. Now, you've had an incredible career so far. There's no stopping you. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would want to hear about your trajectory. So I'd love to start at the beginning with little Gail. Sure. In Toronto, <laughs> Canada, you grew up in a food-loving household. Um, you talk adoringly about your mother and your mom's cooking and how she really shaped who you are today as an eater and a cook. She did. My, my parents were a bit ahead of their time, I think. Um, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s in Toronto, which was an amazing city to grow up in because it's incredibly multicultural. And I know we can say that of a lot of cities, certainly of New York City where we live. Um, But the thing about Toronto that I have always found really interesting and I didn't appreciate until I left was that in a lot of ways, it's not trying to assimilate all of its cultures. It's really preserving them. And so it has this really, really strong Caribbean community, really, really strong Portuguese community, huge Chinese community. I think one of the biggest Chinese populations outside of China, there's not just Chinatown in Toronto, there's five Chinatowns Mm -hmm. and they're each a city unto themselves. Um, And, you know, an incredible Indian community, West Indian community. Um, So, so I was able, my, my parents really took me along for the ride and we explored all of those communities growing up. My mother was actually a cooking teacher. She 
cooked and taught cooking classes out of our home to the neighborhood moms at the time and dads, which in the early 80s was a really big deal that she was teaching men how to cook because it was still really markedly in the woman's domain. And Absolutely. my mom always worked and a lot of her friends worked, but their their husbands were not necessarily pitching in in the kitchen. This was the era of the microwave and that was what was pitching in in the kitchen. But my mother didn't use one. She cooked from scratch. She cooked simple, beautiful food and she taught and she taught the women around her how to do the same. So I grew up coming home in the evenings and my mom teaching cooking classes. On the flip side, my father, who was not a cook, was from South Africa. He was a chemical engineer and he barely boiled water, we liked to say. Still doesn't cook incredibly well. However, had a great appreciation for food and travel. And because he's from South Africa, we spent a lot of my childhood traveling back uh, to South Africa and other places around the world with my parents. And I really think that everywhere we went, was through the lens of food that we were taught to appreciate all of these cultures. And my strongest memories from childhood are the foods I ate along the way. What are some of those foods that you ate growing up? So many things I remember. I mean, little things like exotic fruits that my mom would buy in the market in Chinatown near my house, Um, you know, rambutans and mangoes and um, bok choy and – I remember that she would cook really simply, but with a lot of fresh herbs and spices. Um, She, you know, insists that we try things, but there was never sort of an overlording of food in my house. This was just the way we ate um, all together at the table every night. And I know we all sort of get nostalgic about a time when that happened. I'm still yet to figure out how to make it happen in my own house (laughs) with my children, but Uh, There just was a sense that um, food was revered and appreciated and and cooked thoughtfully, and we were grateful for it. My mom likes to tell people that I was weaned on leek quiche and pate, and I don't really remember those things. That's amazing. But I do remember my friend's parents not wanting to invite me over for lunch because they all thought that because my mom was such a fancy cook – that I wouldn't want to eat all the regular things that kids ate when really like all I wanted were those things too because we didn't have them in our house. Hot dogs. Hot dogs and mac and cheese and stuff like that. And what are the four words emitted from mom on a daily basis? What was it? Oh, well, um, those four words actually weren't from my mom. They were from a family friend. That came a little later when I graduated college and I really had no idea what to do with my life. The idea of working in the food world was not on my radar. It was not something you did with a college education at the time. Like my mom really wanted me to be a lawyer and go to graduate school like all of my girlfriends were doing. I have really, really smart girlfriends and they all went on to do incredible things. And I somehow felt like something was missing with me because when we graduated, they all knew exactly what they wanted to do and what school to go to and um, what to pursue. And I really didn't. And a family friend asked me to write down four words that describe what I want to do. Any words. They don't have to be directed at a job. And the four words that I wrote down that day to her were eat, write, travel, cook. And she looked at me and said, well, there it is. What's the problem? What are you worried about? Here's your career trajectory. And that was the first time I guess I let myself 
acknowledge that this could be a job and that I was allowed to pursue my passion. Even though my mother, who obviously did it herself, wasn't 100% on board at that time. I mean, she was a pretty prescient figure in your life without you really realizing that this could be yes. a career. Oh, absolutely. And you know, it's funny when I finally could say it out loud, I want to pursue a career in food and food writing and cooking. All of her friends, you know, laughed and said, oh, it's so obvious. Of course, you're totally. just like your mother. And I thought that was horrifying because when you're like 22 years old, who wants to be told they're just like their yeah. mother, right? It is a fate beyond your control. It's a fate you know, worse than anything you can imagine because you want to be your own person. Uh, now I realize, of course, that she taught me so much value there and that obviously it's a great compliment to her that she raised me to want to um, experience and pursue these things that were clearly so important to her too. Wait, that's amazing because the four words I was thinking of oh. were like your two brothers and you and supper. Oh, yes. Oh, that's so funny. I was <laughs> well, totally thinking so of a different story. But I, it's, yes, you know, Alan, I Eric, Gail, supper. That's all we would hear. My mother had a very powerful voice. She didn't really have an indoor voice and I don't really either. Um, but, you know, I have two older brothers and we had a great neighborhood that we grew up in and we were always outside before dinner, you know, after school, playing in the neighborhood with all of our friends yeah. on the street, playing street hockey, climbing the trees, riding our bikes. And my mother was known in our neighborhood for coming outside onto the front porch and just screaming, Alan, Eric, Gail, supper. <laughs> some, for some reason, no one else's parents did that. But my mother was just like the mother that everyone knew at 6 p.m., Mrs. Simmons was going to get up on the porch and scream for her kids because she didn't know where we were. She just knew we were running up and down the street somewhere. Oh, childhood. Yes. <laughs> so idyllic. That's amazing. <clears throat> um, now, you mentioned your dad's from South Africa. Yes. And he really has kind of introduced you a whole world of, of flavors and cuisines yes. as well, including biltong, which yes. for anyone who is listening and is not familiar is basically a, a beautiful seasoned version of a jerky it's made from various meats, right? Yes. I mean, traditionally it's beef. Biltong is sort of a national food of South Africa, very um, very important food of South Africa um, for a lot of reasons. Obviously, like jerky, biltong was created to preserve meat before refrigeration. So it is a salted meat that can be preserved, salted and dried. The major difference between biltong and jerky is that jerky is preserved with sugar mm. almost always. Jerky okay. has a sweetness to it. Um, biltong does not. It is salted almost only. Now there's also rubs and spices. Sure. Um, but true biltong was just salted and dry, air-dried beef. And then game as well because in South sure. Africa, which is a huge meat-eating country, and I don't know if you know that the first – like heart transplant was in South Africa because it has such high um, heart disease rates from oh, interesting. consumption. It's yeah, it's a it's maybe less now, but traditionally a very heavy meat eating culture. And obviously, there's a lot of meat besides just beef that's eaten there. It's a wild game culture, so biltong can be made from anything from like wild boar to ostrich to kudu, um, you know, to all the wild animals of Africa that were hunted and hopefully not hunted as much. So he, he wasn't that great in the kitchen, but, no, he, introduced but he introduced you a world. To biltong for sure. And a lot of great food in South Africa, but biltong became very, very important in my family. We always 
brought it back from our travels. We would vacuum seal it and you know smuggle it home. And, of course. And unlike jerky that you buy in sort of shavings and pieces, bolton you can buy in the entire loin, like the entire oh. tenderloin. So you buy these huge ships of meat and then they last a lot longer because they're intact and not exposed. And then we would just saw off little pieces, slice by slice, um, and make it last as long as possible. And it, it's also like great road trip food. It's high in protein. I mean, there's so much to say about bultong that I love. And it's not sweet. And there's no artificial preservatives or like teriyaki flavor to that. Um, <laughs> now you can buy bultong or meat yeah. made in the style of bultong, you know, sure. here in Brooklyn. Yeah. But growing up, it was really a delicacy that we would only get when we went there. I need to try. And the irony is my father's vegan now, so he doesn't even eat it anymore, which means I get all the bulltongue. That's great. Well, you need to share some (laughs) next time you get a fresh shipment. For sure. Um, So let's rewind a bit and talk about eat, cook, travel, right? Sure. How did you roll that plan into motion? Well, when I was first figuring out to be a food writer or to be in food media, I guess, that really meant one thing. I mean, that was at a time, I'm, I'm sounding really old, but 20 years ago, just 20 years ago, um, the idea of food media was a much smaller universe. You know, the internet, the idea of like blogs oh, yeah. and social media and, you know, even an entity like Chowhound like really didn't exist yet. And still print media was the main Gourmet. form of, right, of, um, of, of food journalism. And newspapers, you know, of course, there was still the like the food sections and food columns and the back of women's magazines, right? The last couple pages of women's magazines. And so I wanted to be a food writer and I was living in Toronto and most of the media we consumed was American, you know, like Food and Wine magazine, Gourmet magazine, Sever. And so there weren't that many opportunities in Toronto for a 22-year-old who wanted to be a food writer. I was very lucky that I got a job as an intern the summer after college for a magazine called Toronto Life, which is the city magazine of Toronto, not unlike New York Magazine, an award-winning, excellent magazine, still is. And I worked there for a summer, and it was such an amazing education because I wasn't necessarily working just in the food section. I was still figuring all that out. I was doing fact-checking and research and working for the editors, many of whom have gone on to do amazing things. And I was drawn to the food critic and the food editor because they had this glamorous, fascinating life. And it was really there that I realized more and more, oh, there's this whole culture and industry to food and I want to be part of it. And it's really fascinating to me. So I would beg them to take me on their adventures out into the world of food in Toronto. And I got to know the city of Toronto really well through its food, you know, as an adult for the first time. And then a big newspaper launched in Canada in 1998 Conrad Black launched this huge publication called The National Post, which at the time had a ton of money and had this big glossy weekend magazine section. And I got a job as an editorial assistant for that section. And that Mm. section, of course, had a lot of the food content. And again, I was drawn to the food editor and wanted to do more and more food writing. But there were so few opportunities because the few food critics who had the jobs weren't leaving their jobs. And they were all sort of like, you know, in their middle age and not going anywhere. So... I asked my editor what I should do, and he gave me advice that is still the advice I give people who ask me that same question, which is, what do you actually know about food besides the fact that you like to eat? Because being a journalist, um, you need to know your topic. If you want to be a war reporter, you have to go to the front lines. So I realized then that he was right. I loved to eat, and I 
liked and knew a little bit about food from my mother and, you know, from being a diner, but that doesn't mean I was a professional. I needed to know about food first and foremost. And the rest, the writing could come, right? That's what we have editors for. So um, I quit my job and I enrolled in culinary school and I moved to New York City and I learned about food. Um, And I moved here in 1999 in a full-time culinary school program at what is now the Institute of Culinary Education. And I did that for about eight months. And then I thought, okay, now I've done it and I can just get an internship at Gourmet Magazine and work there for a couple months in their test kitchen. And then I'll go back to Canada and I'll be the food writer that I always wanted to be. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Well, what we all know is that you can't, you're not just a chef. You're not a chef when you graduate culinary school. That's like saying you're a doctor the day you graduate med school when you've never actually performed surgery or, or, you know, done anything on your own. You've done everything once and you need actual practical experience. So the people at my culinary school convinced me that what I really needed was to go work in a kitchen, which isn't really what I wanted. It wasn't part of my plan. But they convinced me that I really needed to get on the line and understand if I wanted to write about the world of chefs and restaurants, I needed to speak the language of the kitchen. And I needed to understand what it was like to be a chef. And I did not know that yet, just from working in a classroom for a year. So they convinced me to work on the line. And I did. And I worked in two big restaurants here in New York. And it was the hardest work of my life. But I stuck with it and was a line cook for several months and hated it and loved it and was thrilled by it and was horrified and cried a lot and got my butt handed to me and worked absurd hours in some very unfriendly places. But ultimately, I got invaluable experience that set me on the course for everything that came after it. I don't think I could do the job I do today without having had that experience and also without the confidence that it gave me to cook, like to really execute which isn't, you know, that sense of urgency you just can't get anywhere Absolutely. else. Absolutely. It's not just about the technique. It's the timing. It's the camaraderie. It's yes. everything exactly. that you learn. That mentality of, um, you know, the, the, the dance of, of being on the line. And so I did that for a while. And I did it knowing that wasn't my end goal. Sure. And at the time, without making this too long a story, at the time, you know, that's when that's when line cooks get in a lot of trouble, right? That's why notoriously the life of a line cook is a little bit um, dangerous because you're working long hours, you're working evenings, weekends, mm-hmm. and holidays. And when you're off, you're off late at night. So you start work, you know, I was starting work at like 11 yeah. or noon every day and finishing at midnight. And you can't just go home to bed right after you finish you work. You decompress. You got to decompress. And so most of my friends were like going to bars and drinking And I went home and I would read a lot. And a book I read that really changed my life was a book called The Man Who Ate Everything by Jeffrey Steingarten. And he was at the time Vogue's preeminent uh, award-winning food critic. And he had just written his first book, this, this book, The Man Who Ate Everything. And I'd never read Vogue magazine, but I read this book and just realized like the light went off in my head that this is my job, not Jeffrey's job, because I knew I was never going to be Jeffrey. I mean, he is one of the greatest writers of our time. But he talks about his assistant in his book all the time and how one day she's at the green market looking for ingredients and the next day she's recipe testing and the next day she's doing research in Chinatown and the next day she's up at the New York Public Library researching. And it just seemed like the perfect way to take all of these pieces of things I love, the fact-checking and writing and editing and research and recipe testing and getting my hands dirty 
and using my anthropology degree from college and my Spanish degree and putting it all together. And as luck would have it, Jeffrey was looking for an assistant. And I found out through my culinary school that he needed someone and I interviewed and it was a really hard interview. I remember oh walking gosh, away from me. thinking, okay, well, I totally bombed that, but at least I got to spend an evening with Jeffrey Steingarten and that's like a career highlight. And now I can go back to Canada and like, you know, die happy. And I got the job. And I don't, to this day, I need to ask him next time I see him why he gave me that job. But I think he wasn't looking for you to be perfect and know everything. You of realize after working for him or people like him, and I think a lot of people have had a boss like that, this sort of this person who can be incredibly intimidating but incredibly brilliant and teach you sort of every lesson the hard way. There was no, no there were no shortcuts. And he was not looking, as I said, for you to be perfect and to know everything. He was looking for someone who had the confidence to talk back to him and ask questions and also to keep up with him and want to learn and and be a little bit feisty. He did not want a wallflower. He wanted someone who would challenge him, but who also he could like get to run around the city doing crazy things and was just kind of up for the adventure. And so I spent two years with Jeffrey wow. doing all those things. And he really uh, changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, he's a bit of a mad scientist. And I was with him through two years in New York that were really difficult and, and challenging for me, but also for the city of New York. I was with him during 9-11, um, you know, and and through such a moment in my life when I was with him when I met my husband or the, the man who became my husband. Um, and so it was like a, just a really incredibly formative time uh, for me in New York. And he protected me and challenged me and introduced me to like everyone in the world from you know, I remember Alice Waters and Martha Stewart and Pierre Hermé and Danielle Ballou and all these still big figures of, in our world. Yeah, figures who I never in a million years dreamed of being able to meet, let alone you know talk to and build relationships with. And it was because of that that I got my next job, which was working for Danielle, um, who I went to work for after Jeffrey for several years, working on his restaurants and doing marketing and public relations and events with him. Uh, and book projects and all those things. And I did that for a long time before landing at Food and Wine about 15 years ago. And since then, I mean, basically we know you as kind of a food celebrity, but <laughs> after leaving Kitchens, yes, did you ever miss that environment? I did. I do still. Um, I, I knew I never wanted to be a chef, but I do miss the the heartbeat of a kitchen, right? Like I miss the adrenaline and uh, I miss the rush of, you know, being in the thick of it, in the in the weeds, as they say. Um, it's addictive, you know, in a lot of ways. And I just love the rhythm of a kitchen. But I do get to spend a little time in kitchen still. And I do get to spend a lot of time cooking and keeping my hands dirty in different ways, in ways that I do now that I could never have imagined back then either. I mean, I never left the kitchen wanting to be on television ever. I mean, television was not in my purview the Food Network, I guess, was around when I left the kitchen and went to work for Jeffrey and then Danielle, but that was still not something sort of taken seriously. The people on the Food Network at the time were chefs, you know, Emeril and Wolfgang and, and all those great people, but it wasn't sort of mainstream media yet sure. by any means. And print publications were still where my heart lay, and that's what I wanted to pursue. 
And so when I went, I went to work for Danielle and that was an amazing education too, for other reasons. He sort of gave me this MBA in restaurant life. I still, you know, I, I loved the world of restaurants. And when I went to Food and Wine magazine, I was able to sort of put together all the things, the writing and the, and the cooking and event, public relations, media stuff that I love for a publication and a brand that I really loved. And it was only at Food and Wine that the television thing became even something that I entertained. And it also came to me completely serendipitously. I was not at Food and Wine to be on television. I was at Food and Wine doing a totally different job. Ultimately, I was the event director and I was running the Classic in Aspen and a bunch of other events for the brand and working with the marketing department. And the person who I had replaced had done a little bit of TV, you know, one-off segments here and there when the Today Show needed someone to talk about spring menus or a trend in wine or something like that. And when he left, they needed someone to do that for them. And because I had had some media experience working for Danielle and knew all all the people in the field, having done it with Danielle, they asked if I'd be up for the job and they put me through media training and I started doing just those little segments here and there. Again, still not as my day job, just as like, you know, once once a month I would go on, you know, New York One or something. And then... Uh, in 2005, Bravo went to Food and Wine with this idea for a food reality, you know, a cooking co- competition show, which was really the first of its kind. I mean, there had been Iron Chef Japan at the time. Which I love. Which, of course, was, you know, the standard by which all else are measured, but in a totally different format, right? That was these three Iron Chefs in a stadium. But what Bravo was pitching was something very different. It was the real life of cooks, the the next great talents, discovering young talent and and throwing open that kitchen door to what it was like to be a young chef in America and challenging them to find the next top chef. And they brought it to Food and Wine to partner on the show and said, you know, teach us about the food world, show us the players and in exchange we can collaborate on the prize and if we like one of your editors we'll put them on the judging panel to represent the magazine on the show and so they sent me for a screen test and I had no idea what a screen test was and I kind of went kicking and screaming because it scared the heck out of me how was I going to explain reality television to my mother because at the time reality television was like fear factor Mm -hmm. and survivor so I had these visions of being like tied to a tree eating maggots or something terrible. (laughs) And when I got to Bravo for that screen test, I realized they were actually trying to make something really earnest and really true to the world of restaurants. And that's also when I discovered that Tom Colicchio had been asked to be the head judge. And I had known Tom for years from my Jeffrey Steingarten days, but also through Food & Wine very well. And and I knew that if he was going to do this show and take it seriously, he was going to keep us all in line because – he was the definition of a chef's chef. You know, he was a New York City chef who wanted to expand his empire and understood the value of television, but was not going to compromise for it. And so, miraculously, they chose me to do the show with them, and we all flew to San Francisco in November or October of 2005 and made this show that we really thought would be three weeks of our lives, and we would go back and then, you know, go back to our day jobs and not think much else about it, and that was... 15 years ago, almost 15 years ago. And we're still making it. That's incredible. And it's like spinoffs and iterations and all the things. I want to take a quick break here because I do want to dive into the show. Um, 
but stick around. We'll be back with Gail Simmons in just a moment. Welcome back to Chow Hound's Table Talk. I'm here with Gail Simmons today, and we're talking about her more than 15 years on Top Chef. Now, a lot has changed in the reality TV landscape yes. since you started. I mean, as you mentioned, it was really defined by more like, you know, survivor style or like Big Brother style programming. Mm-hmm. And um, here comes a show that is really just showing real chefs on the line. I mean, not on the line in a restaurant yeah. sense, but really just exposing the audience to a world that they probably have never seen before. Definitely not. Um, so I'd be curious to hear what are some things that you think think have changed over the years as it relates to reality TV. Um, let, let's start There's with that. There's a lot. Yeah. Sure. There's a lot. So what was interesting about the beginning of Top Chef is that Bravo had just come off of creating Project Runway and it struck a chord. And I think the reason that it struck a chord and then in turn in its own way Top Chef really resonated with its audience is because it showed people the real life of like skilled craftsmen. It wasn't about dropping people on a desert island, which is also intriguing in its own right, but this is very different. It was just a different style. It was about watching people do what they do every day, people who'd be doing this anyway, even if their cameras weren't on. They weren't amateurs wanting to be chefs. They were professionals. And seeing people produce and create like art or craft in that way is really engaging. Um, to see people create a dress or uh, or a beautiful plate of food under these time constraints and challenges and limitations and seeing that success and that kind of vesting your interest in the personalities who are able to do this, I think is where we shine and where Top Chef and, and before us, Project Runway, really stood out. And I think that was the first time that had ever been done on television, really showing a competition of, uh, of professional, at a professional level. And then in terms of the food space, it was the first time that it felt sort of raw and real and it showed the life of like young cooks, not chefs who have made it and who are already perfect and glossy and, you know, the fireworks and the, and the perfection of it and not amateurs who were aspiring to cook but who were ultimately failing and it was all about the sort of watching people fumble. This was about lifting up and discovering talent and giving them the opportunity and the stage that they would not have otherwise. And turns out people really want to see that. It also turns out that the life behind the kitchen door is really interesting too, the language of of the kitchen. The other thing that's interesting is that food is such a universal medium. You know, everybody eats. We're human. And as much as people love to tell me I'm not a foodie, I don't know anything about food, I don't cook, I don't like to cook, we're not asking you to cook on this show. We're asking you to watch people make food and everyone has an opinion about food, whether you think you do or not. Even that's if your right. opinion is I don't like it, that's, an, that's opinion. an opinion. And so it's, I think it's something that really hits home no matter who you are. You can relate to something, your aversions, your thoughts, your cravings, and that that's you know, also something that really propelled us and engaged us with our audience. The other thing that I think has changed a lot in reality television is the the style of judging that I think we really um, pioneered in some ways was that it's not, it wasn't about us as the judges. It started off a little bit more so 
you know, in the early days of reality television, if you remember, there was always on a judging panel, like the villain and the mean one and the good one and the nice one. Right. There was the Simon and the Paula model in the early days. But what Top Chef realized is that because our audience couldn't taste the food, you really had to trust the judges because we became the taste buds for the audience. And if you as the audience member didn't trust our opinions and didn't like us and didn't feel that we were giving these contestants the chance and the due that they deserved for working so hard because the audience is invested in the characters. Absolutely. Then they're going to change the channel if they don't appreciate our opinions and trust our opinions as the judges because they, you know, people, when you look at a dress, you can see if you like it or not. But when you look at a dish, you can't tell if it's good. You you need to le- leave yourself in our hands to explain to you the merits of it or not. So when our producers just sort of allowed us to be ourselves and just have a really honest, true conversation about food and be passionate and positive and constructive, what happened was our audience really, Respond. really tuned in. And, and we hit something that, you know, luckily, I think people still continue to enjoy watching. The other thing about our show, I think, that sets it apart from a lot of reality shows that has given it longevity is the fact that we don't do the season in a studio. And in fact, we do every single season in a different city around the country, if not around the world. And that allows us to delve into the cuisine of everywhere we go. So the storyline and the characterization of the show changes so, so much. Constantly evolving. Right. And it's never the same. We're not just kind of trying to think of crazy challenges in a in a setting that's like a a a, a set that doesn't change. The flavor of the show, the the backdrop of the show totally changes whether we're shooting in Colorado or Chicago or Puerto Rico or Singapore or Hawaii or New York City or Los Angeles. You know, the the cuisine changes, the 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 chefs change, the culture. Um, the ethnicities, all the stuff we can pull from. So the show every season is completely different in its look and feel. And I think that's been, you know, the most fun for sure. Do you have a favorite season or what perhaps more memorable? Uh, I definitely have favorite locations. Um, I think my favorite season location-wise was New Orleans. It was season 11. Uh, We shot in the summer, which was, you know, some executive's bright idea to shoot in a swamp in July. But we loved it. I was actually pregnant the whole time. So I was like the only sober person in the city of New Orleans. And it was in- incredible. I just loved getting actual time. You know, we shoot for like four to six weeks. Mm. That season was particularly long. So we were there for about six weeks. And getting to spend that much time in New Orleans, which I think is such a unique city in the context of American yeah. history and culture, for me was like a real life highlight. You know, but I've loved so many locations we've been to. I have, we have all found, you know, great nooks and crannies everywhere we've been. You know, I didn't think I would like Denver as much as I did. We spent a month in Denver and turns out Denver's awesome. I mean, we knew it was beautiful, but I didn't know if we'd find any soul to its food. And we, you know, we did. We, because we don't go places for three days, we go for a month or more. We get to really, you know, plant roots a little bit, get to know the city and, and, because the restaurant community is the way it is. Everywhere we go, chefs open their doors to us and want to show us their city. And so we have really great tour guides. Now, are you having like family meal with the contestants? Or no, is no, it no, complete, no, 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 no. It's completely, completely separate. separate. I mean that we're very true to the game uh, because it doesn't behoove anyone. We 
are never in the same room alone with the contestants, ever. I mean, they literally have a supervising producer with them. Like, they have to ask to go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? We don't spend any time with them. They are sequestered in their house or in their interviews, in the kitchen, uh, and we stay completely um, separate from them the entire duration of the show because we don't want to get to know them. We don't want to have biases. We don't care. It's For us, it's all about the food. I think that's one point we should delve into a little further in that as an audience member watching the show and being a fan, there's no way you can't help get close to, you know, form an affinity for a certain contestant or another. Meanwhile, you guys are completely judging solely on the merits of the food and the taste and the quality of the plating, for example. I think that tension is what makes the show so great. That exact place where that tension sits, where you as an audience member can't taste the food, but you watch the show as a package all edited together where you're watching the relationships in the house, the relationships in the kitchen, the interviews, the challenges, the judging all together. So you are investing in the people and in their talent that you see, but don't taste. On the other hand, we only see the chefs at the challenges and at judges table. We never see them in the kitchen. We never see them uh, in the house. We don't know Where what's going on with their backstory. We don't know if their child is sick at home or their restaurant is about to go bankrupt. None of that plays into what we know at the time of shooting. We come, we eat, we judge, we leave. And so there is this totally different experience. And that's what makes the show fair. And that's what I think makes it honest. Um, because when we sit down and judge them, it doesn't matter what they made yesterday. It doesn't matter what they might have the capability of making tomorrow should we let them carry on. All that matters is what's before us. Is it good? Is it not? If it's good, you stay. If it's not, you leave. Um, And I sometimes have a lot of conversations with people who get frustrated by that because they're like, but that person was the best chef. How could you have let that person go for one dish when you know that they'd won so many challenges beforehand? And I always say this to them. When you go to a restaurant as a diner and you have a really bad meal, are you Mm -hmm. gonna go back to that restaurant? No. If you have a great meal, will you go back? Yes, not only will you go back, but you'll tell all your friends about it. So you don't get a second chance as a chef. It doesn't matter that your sous chef left that that morning or that you need to go to the doctor or that your farmer didn't deliver the produce that he promised. All of that doesn't make a difference when a diner comes and sits in your restaurant and pays $35 for an entree. Um, What matters to that guest is that the food is good and that they're treated well, and that's all we care about. And if they're treated well, they will happily come back. And if they're not, they're not going to come back. And in fact, they'll probably tell their friends to not come back either. So we try to emulate that true if extrapolated experience, that it's really just about the food and you're only as good as your last dish. Yeah. Treat every time like the first time and you're really paying for consistency. Correct. That is right. It must be hard though. It's very hard. (laughs) But you know what? That's what the job of the guest judge is. On on the show every episode, there's Tom and Padma and myself and then there's a guest judge. And that guest judge serves a really important purpose because that guest judge is different every week doesn't know who the contestants are, haven't eaten, hasn't eaten their food before, has no preconceived notions, even though we have been eating their food now, sure. let's say three, four, five weeks in a row. And even though we try to remain completely unbiased, we still will see patterns. Chefs have styles and we can spot them. But the guest judge comes in having known nothing and doesn't care and comes in for one day and leaves. 
So they really also help in keeping the process fair and true to what it is. And there's also Tom Colicchio, who is, as we thought he would be that first day, really about treating those chefs as if they were chefs in his kitchen. And he's good to them like a dad. He trusts them and he mentors them, but he also does not tolerate them if they're going to give him crap food. So if it's not good, like, you know, if if your sous chef yeah. really screws up one night, he's getting fired or she, as it were. What is your most memorable dish from all of the seasons? Oh, God. I don't think – people ask me that a lot. And I have to say I, I've had two children. My mind is a sieve. There's just <laughs> no way – I mean, even on a good day, if you think of, you know, 15, 16, 17 seasons, four different spinoffs, countless challenges, yeah. thousands of meals – I can't possibly think of just one single dish. There are many dishes yeah. over the years that I've loved that that stand out for all different reasons. Um, every season, chefs show us things that blow our minds. And that's what I love so much about food, that you can never have tried it all. Like, there's always more to learn. There's always more combinations. There's always more ideas and techniques to hone and ways to present something and reevaluate and rethink and reconstruct. And that's why food I find so incredible. It's, it's so fleeting, you know, it's, it's created with so much passion and then you eat it and it's gone. You get to start all over again the next day and you're hungry in five hours from now. Like that's the beauty of eating. Um, So perhaps a better question, something with a little more longevity is, is there um, a good tip or like what's the best tip you've been shared from your judging panel or a oh. contestant, whether it's technique driven or like a plating, right? Um, you know. Well, there's a couple things. I mean, I think when they're in it, it's so much harder than it looks oh, yeah. on television, and it's so easy to play like the Monday morning quarterback and say, "Well, I would have done it this way, and that person should know better." And why did you do this? And you know, never do a duo. You know, not to do that or don't do risotto. But people are always trying to push and push and take risks, and I really appreciate that. And I think that there is a lesson in there. In fact, in in my book, at the beginning of my book, I I write down like 15 or so lessons that I learned from Top Chef, but that are great in the everyday kitchen. And one of them is like you, you have to take risks, you know, try things. If they don't work, it's just a plate of food. Um, but but try them in an educated way. So, you know, the 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 way to be a great cook and to be able to experiment and be spontaneous in the kitchen is to first really learn the foundation and the basics. And once you've mastered roasting a chicken, then you can try to roast it with, you know, all all the different ways and and spices and flavor combinations. Um, And so, you know, understanding foundation of cooking and the science of cooking, I think is really important. Um, And so I'm always amazed when chefs can can give me something really simple, but still blow me away with it. And sometimes that simplicity is is really still what it's about. You know, I'm never ever you're never going to go home for a simple simple dish if it's made really well. Well, those are the hardest dishes, exactly, because you're sort of just naked. Yeah, and and leave yourself open to more criticism. But when you nail it, you nail it. I love that you bring up the 15 or so rules um, of your kitchen because some of them are very practical, like use more acid or know how to use salt. But the rest are actually like more coaching style tips, like get back up, try it again. Right. (laughs) Um, Don't be discouraged and just keep cooking, keep eating. Well, you know, I think that 
people tell me all the time how I'm not a good cook. I don't like cooking, they say, or I, I just, I don't have the patience for it. I can't cook. But people don't think, people think cooking is something maybe you're born with. It's not. It's a skill. It's, it's a learned a skill. skill. The same way that learning how to play the guitar is a learned skill. Like, I'm a terrible guitar player. You know why? Because I don't play the guitar. Because I've, you know, I actually do play the guitar a little <laughs> bit, but I'm not very good because I don't practice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's why I'm also a mediocre tennis player. Um, like anything, like any skill, you're not going to be good at it unless you do it. So the people who tell me that they aren't good cooks, my response is always, that's because you don't cook. I really believe that there's no such thing as a great cook or a bad cook. It's just the hours that you've put into it. The great cooks are great cooks because they spend time focusing on it. And sometimes you're predisposed to liking. Like there's a reason sure. that I'm not a good football player because I've never taken the time, nor do I have interest in taking the time. And that's fine. But the, but the, 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 the thought is I don't like football that much. Um, and that's okay for me to admit and own, but it's not, well, I'm, I'm never going to be good at football. I'm sure that if I put my mind to it, I could be a much better football player than I am. I'm going on a little bit along about this, but the truth is I really believe that it's just about taking the time and, and, you know, thinking through and mastering a few good things. And once you have learned how to do a few things well, the rest just falls into place, you know? Searing a piece of meat is the same whether you're making chicken or beef or fish. It's just the time, you know, the, the time and some of the sort of accoutrement may change. Uh, but that's that's it. So it's it's not it's not um rocket science. It's just about patience. And truly a skill that one can build on yes. for the rest of their lives. And you don't also have to be a four-star chef to be a great chef. Like some of the best cooks I know are really simple home cooks. And they might not make very many things, but what they make, they make really well because they've taken the time to, to do them and to take pride in them. And confidence. I mean, confidence is a big thing with any skill. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, we'll ask Gail about some of her favorite things to make at home. We're back with Gail Simmons. Hello. Hi. Um, so one thing I forgot to ask you about Top Chef and being a judge on Top Chef is the food. You're obviously tasting the food, but how much of it gets eaten? Tell me it doesn't go to waste. It doesn't go to waste. It's a funny question because that's when I get a lot. And usually it comes in the form of how do you possibly eat all yeah. that food? And uh, it's a good question, but people think we're like eating full plates of 17 dishes every single day. We're not. The show only shoots for six weeks of the year, let's say, and um, there, there is a lot of food, um, but we're trained professionals. Uh, number one, we do our stomach stretching exercises every morning. No, that's not true. Um, <clears throat> although we do have larger appetites than most people. Like yeah. that, you know, we've, we've definitely trained ourselves that way. The other thing is that usually on Top Chef, not always, but usually the meal is around lunchtime. So it is oh, okay. the big meal of, of my day. I know I'm eating it. I have a light breakfast, but I always do eat breakfast because if I come super hungry, then I eat way too much at the mm -hmm. beginning and then I'm full and or I just eat too much overall. And then the truth is, yes, we just taste things. We have a few bites of every plate. If, if it's really good, then I will finish my plate. And sometimes I do because sometimes they're just little tasting portions. And, you know, if there's eight contestants and you eat tasting portions, it's a big meal, but it's like it's doable. Yeah. You don't need to finish everything on your plate. And we don't. You can't. And it's not necessary, especially – 
on days when they're cooking like family style, huge dishes mm. and there's, you know, 15, 16 people. The beginning episodes of the season are always a little more challenging because there's so many contestants and there's so much food, but you just have to taste. I don't need to eat a whole plate to understand the chef's intentions. I like to eat a bite of everything they made individually and then, you know, kind of put it all together. Um, so you're having three or four bites from every plate. It's not out of control. And and then, you know, you you get up and move. And that's sort of what it's about. We all take care of ourselves. We're all very conscious of the fact that we are old, getting older. When I started this show, I was in my 20s. I am not anymore, although that may surprise you. So, you know, you just have to be conscious of what you're eating and eat really healthfully at other times around it. Um, although the truth, truth, the truth is as well that because we shoot in different cities around the world, we're eating on the show and then on our days off or in the evening, if we get off early enough, we all want to go out for dinner mm. and check out the city we're in. So yeah, it's a lot of eating, but you know what? I like to eat, so it's okay. A couple bites here and there, move on. Well, I've had the pleasure of eating with you for fun yes. in New York. And I know when you're shooting, obviously it's a limited time, like yes. six to eight weeks. But your job just inherently demands that you are out and about, you yeah. know, at least a couple times a week. I Definitely. know with a family at home, you try to limit that somewhat. Mm -hmm. But how are you trying to balance or how are you able to, not trying to, because you yeah. are, but how, how, like, how do you, and this is a good segue into Gail Home Cook. Yeah. Like, what are you doing at home to kind of offset some of this, um, you know, eating out right. more there than is, the ordinary person? There is a lot of eating out in my life. I mean, it is part of my job for sure. And I definitely eat out less now that I have small children at home than I used to. Um, it also gives me a good excuse to cook more at home, which I'm definitely doing. And, you know, I try to, I, we try to eat very simply at home. A lot of vegetables, a lot of whole grains. You know, I have a rule that if it's really junky, like just don't bring it in my house. I don't, we, we don't buy and eat a lot of junky food at home. One, because we don't need it. Our children don't need it. And if it's there, I'm going to eat it. So our pantry and fridge are pretty simple. And we really try to focus on eating. I'm not by any means a vegetarian, but you know, vegetable sure. and fruit and whole grain forward more than meat in my house. Neither of my kids are big meat eaters. And maybe that's just because, by example, there's not a ton of meat in our house all the time. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not great protein. Um, and then I try to do kind of one cooking project a week, whether it's on a Sunday or a Monday evening, just so that there is some, uh, you know, food prep ready options around. And then just have lots of good, healthy snacks and raw vegetables and things like that on hand. Um, you know, in the winter, I'm always craving soup. So I make soup like every week. That's my thing. I make a lot of soup. Um, and I find that our family just sort of like lives and survives on soup in the best way. All different soup. Um, we have soups that like my kids love. So we make them all the time. But then we also, you know like to experiment. A lot of stews and braises and veggies and beans and, you know, stewed braised things because that's what I'm craving at this time of year, but it's also easy to make in big batches yeah. and I love leftovers. I do If too. you don't love leftovers, don't come to my house. Um, 
I believe in leftovers. And I don't mean like eating the scraps off of people's plates, but just, you know, making big bulk amounts of food. It's much more economically efficient and it allows me to come home at seven o'clock at night, still see my family and know that I can feed them something good for dinner. Now, I've seen the inside of your fridge. Yes. And it's very impressive. Um, and I think… Uh, I mean, I cleaned it up a little for you the last <laughs> oh, time you were over. But still, it's like the the fact of the matter is you make it as easy as possible for you to just show up and then get some things on a plate and still make it feel yes. thought out. Even if maybe it's not. Maybe it's just some, yeah, some you hard know, look, eggs. So, exactly. Some weeks are much more organized than others. We are generally not a morning family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've trained our children to not be morning people. I'm sorry. Um, but because of that, mornings are not fun. And mornings in most young households aren't fun. You know, getting people out the door and dressed with shoes on and hair brushed and teeth brushed and… It's a hustle. …wearing clean clothes, you know, and not yelling at each other on time is a hustle. And so breakfasts in my family are really important. That's the time we get to spend together because I'm not always home for dinner. So making breakfast in advance to me is really important. I make big batches of oats. I make big batches of chia pudding. Uh, I make big batches of hard-boiled eggs or frittatas or little kind of, you know, muffin omelet things or sort of healthy-ish muffins, quinoa muffins, that kind of thing in advance so that at least in the morning – I'm not scrambling and I know my kids have like eaten something healthy to start their day and that we can grab it, eat it. We do really try to all sit down together, but like eat it, but I'm not like making four different breakfasts at 8 a.m. You know what I mean? That I don't have the bandwidth to do. Well, you're not a short order cook. No. Some days are like that. You know, <laughs> breakfast, we do long leisurely and breakfast. What but. are Dahlia and Cole loving these days or maybe also not loving? Um, let's see. Well, <clears throat> so… My son and my daughter seem to have different tastes, which I think is so interesting. You know, I've always loved that, you know, coming from the same family, you think you feed them the same things and they they eat really differently. Dahlia is really a vegetable girl and always has been, which I really like. She right now at six has decided she's into salads, which is really funny to me. Wow. And embarrassing because, you know, my friends are always like, oh, you're being so, like, oh, your daughter likes salads. Like, that's so, of course she does, you know. And I really didn't mean it. Like, sometimes all I want to do is give the girl a cheeseburger. And why won't she eat a cheeseburger? Like, what kid doesn't want a hot dog or a cheeseburger? And she just is like, well, you know, we'll go out for dinner and she won't eat much at dinner and then she'll come home and want me to make her a salad, which I think is hilarious. But you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to. That is hilarious. I'm not going to complain. What is she having? Like, Um, what's her order? She's into… Sort of like a simple Israeli salad. Like she loves, you know. Oh, well, that's delicious. But you can put lots of things in it. So I do generally like a chopped salad with cucumbers, peppers, tomatoes, lots of tomatoes, um, olives, green beans, chickpeas, um, you know, just like chopped up veg. She's obsessed with olives in general. She's always been. Yes. Her favorite breakfast in the morning when we have time to make it are olive omelets. Oh. So she loves… Um, chopped up omelets, kind of like sautéed into scrambled eggs, you know, a little olive omelet she loves. Um, she also loves soup. She has this one soup that's in my book in a variation that I simplify a bit for her that's a lentil and chickpea soup, sort of like a Moroccan mm. lentil and chickpea soup. 
that she will devour day after day. Um, you know, she's that's that's kind of her jam. My son right now is just like pasta, 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 pasta. He's 19 months. He's sort of this like truck of a little boy. He's like 30 pounds of meat. Amazing. Um, and so he just wants pasta. I don't only give him pasta, him. but he really yeah. does pasta and cheese. Like that seems, that's his thing. I mean, I don't blame him. Who can blame him? Yeah. Um, but that's what he's going for. I mean, he's also much younger. But he also will eat tomatoes like crazy. We, we just went away for Christmas holiday and we were in Jamaica and we were struggling to kind of find things that he would eat for lunch because he's not going to necessarily eat jerk chicken, although a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, it's spicy and my kids don't necessarily want to eat really spicy food. They'll eat a lot of things, but we would just give him a plate of sliced tomatoes and cocoa bread, that like beautiful mm. soft Jamaican bread that they eat, um, dipped in the salad dressing. Yeah. That's what he wants to eat, cocoa bread dipped in salad dressing. He loves dipping. That's his new thing. And piles of sliced tomatoes. I don't know. That was funny. So so I'm not totally failing in the food game. Oh, but, no. But we'll see where it goes. You know, at his when, when she was his age, you could stuff anything in her mouth, like spinach and zucchini, Everything. and you can't do that with him. Yeah, you can't do that with him because he has an older sister. <laughs> that's right. She really likes baking, so that's fun. We do a lot of baking together, you know, and she's starting to kind of understand the math of baking. Yeah. She's in first grade, and so, you know, the measuring and the counting – I think is really great. And so we made like a big banana bread this weekend and he ate like half the banana bread. That's, I love that. Go Cole. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what I love about your cookbook is that it also is a bit of a travel diary. Yes. You're kind of culling the best flavors and tastes from all of your amazing travels over the years. How difficult was it to kind of pare that down? And like, how did you, how much, how difficult or easy was it to know which ones to include. You know, it's funny when I when I sat down to write the book, I was writing the table of contents and you you don't recognize patterns in your own sort of associations and predispositions to food until you sit down and have to write what your 100 favorite recipes are. And in the first iteration of that table of contents, I really saw who I am. You know, it taught me so much about myself so and how I like to eat, you know, the the penchant for putting certain spices or herbs or flavors into recipes again and again. And you also, I really saw how travel to different places shaped the way I cooked. You know, the amount of recipes that were from South Africa that I had to end up taking out, mm -hmm. the amount of sort of Jewish Eastern European riffs on mishmash. deli food. Oh, yeah. The Reuben Latka. The Reuben Latka, the mishmash. There were so many that I had to end up take out, taking out because my cookbook editor had to point out, like, that's a different book. You know, you can't write three quarters of a Jewish deli book and one quarter, you know, I'm here everything for it. else. I know, totally, <laughs> but, but different book. Yeah. So, you know, you need to balance out a little bit. And from that first iteration of the table of contents to where we landed, definitely changed along the way. You know, I spent a, a big chunk of time in Vietnam. I spent a big chunk of time in Israel. I talk about travels to Australia and the South Pacific growing up. And then, of course, South Africa, um, time spent in Japan. So all of these things really influence the way that I cook at home. And that's what I wanted to express, not just what my travels are, but how we all take in, you know, travel, whether it's, you know, down the street or to another neighborhood or another country and the inspiration that I've been able to garner and then integrate into my home cooking. 
so that I can vary the things I cook and um, and use these places and these memories as inspiration to to feed my family. And what are some standout recipes that you'd recommend for a fan picking this up for the first time? Oh, there's so many things that I love in the book that I go back to again and again. Um, the first is on the cover, which yes. sort of came as a I funny thing. Um, Tell us about it. It's a spaghetti pie, which I didn't intend to put on the cover in the beginning, but it just became this beloved recipe in the book. And I'm so glad that it, that it was like that, that people liked making it. And I've made so many versions of it since. The idea is it's a spaghetti pie. You know, it's not unlike a baked pasta dish. Same um, concept, you know, whether it's, you know, a different shape. Spaghetti makes it fun and sort of silly. And just the term spaghetti pie is sort of great. And the recipe came from a trip to New Zealand when I was 19. I traveled to Australia and New Zealand for several months. My family that all used to live in South Africa immigrated to Sydney. And so they're based in Australia now. And I went to visit them. And then I traveled around for a few months in the summer after my freshman year of college. And when we got to New Zealand and we were traveling around backpacking, I was with one of my best friends. And everywhere we went in New Zealand at the time, they had spaghetti sandwiches at all the sort of like truck stops and and car stops on the on the roads, you know, where you would get off to get gas refuel. or pit stop and refuel, refuel. They had toasted spaghetti sandwiches. It was like a highlight of every menu. And we all thought this was hilarious and amazing. It was basically spaghetti tossed in tomato sauce and pressed into a panini. And it was delicious. And as a student, you're like, oh, it's $4. Like, that's amazing. And it's going to sustain me. That carb on carb action. Yes. And at the time, we didn't know from the carb on carb. We didn't care about the carb no. on carb. I still don't care that much about the carb on carb. <laughs> but it's sort of funny in this day and age yeah. because it's not something you would think to make otherwise. So I brought it home and I always loved the idea of the spaghetti sandwich. And I was trying to figure out a funny way to make an ode to the spaghetti sandwich. And I came up with the spaghetti pie. And it's essentially a really delicious spaghetti and meat sauce. You can use turkey. You can use beef with lots of veggies and tons of cheese tossed together in a um, pie plate with a removable bottom that you can bake till it's crusty and golden on top. And I use lots of sage and herbs. And then you slice it like a pie. And I mean, my version can feed like 12 people. So it's perfect for the Super Bowl or it's perfect for, you know, you're feeding like a big crowd. Kids love it. Everyone loves it. It's like hard to not just want to eat spaghetti pie all the time. And it's so fun and different. Yeah. And silly. And that's okay. It doesn't need to be like a fancy thing. There are much fancier things in the book or bigger projects, so to speak. Um, But make spaghetti pie for your friends. I still like to make spaghetti pie. What could we find you cooking up on a on a slow, quiet weekend? Hmm. I mean, I pickle things. So you love um, a good my pickle. father, yeah, my father used to pickle things. I enjoy pickling things. Um, you know, I'm not like a I mean, I make a giant Brooklyn cliche right now. It's not like I'm pickling all the time. Um, but it could be something like that. Um, you know, I, I'm not a huge pastry chef. But I do like to bake simple things with my family and for my family when I have the time, Uh, whether it's like quick breads or cookies. Um, The thing I love about making desserts 
or baking in general is that there's like no reason to do it. It's not for nutrition. It's not for sustainability. It's purely for love. You know, you make desserts because they're delicious and um, and fun and they make people happy. And so as much as I'm not going to make like an elaborate pastry on a regular basis, I do love, you know, making simple, fun, desserty items just to like make people happy. Well, you have a beautiful maple sugar tart in there. Yes. Which is insane. Yes. That's one of my favorite recipes in the book too. Yeah. And easy. It doesn't take all weekend. I mean, it's a really simple recipe. It's got wow factor though. So it's good for a crowd. So after the spaghetti pie, have that tarta soup waiting. It's called tarta soup. It's like a very traditional Canadian, a Quebecois, French Canadian pie that's really traditional and eaten at this time of year in the winter. Um, in sugar shacks, at maple sugar shacks all over Quebec. If you go to a maple sugar shack to see the maple sugar made being made, they often have, um, you know, a restaurant and they're almost always serving tarto souk. And I make my own version with hazelnuts and you pour cold cream mm. over top of it and it's just really decadent and super addictive. Heavenly. Maple is like the holy grail of ingredients in my house. I'm and a, I'm a Canadian. I was just going to say, like, New England maple doesn't yes, cut it for no. you. Come on now. That's <laughs> insulting. No, that's not true. I mean, I love all maple, but but certainly when that's I buy you know. maple syrup, I buy Canadian maple syrup. I'm going to switch gears a bit and introduce people to a side of you that they might not be familiar with. Um, well, maybe now they know you're hugely family-oriented. Um, you have a great eye for style and home design, as we know. And um, you also have a secret talent. I don't know if you want to share. I'm not sure I know what you mean. Um, Tap dancer. Oh, God, yes. Okay. I was like, home design talent? Yeah. That's my, I, I married someone who has much more home design talent than I. But Jeremy I, is a great But guy. I appreciate it. Yes. Um, yes, I tap dance. I mean, I don't tap dance on a regular basis. That is not true. But I know how to tap dance. Yeah. I tap danced. Um, as a child for many, many, many years. So once in a while, I break it out. I need to see the footage. Uh, You know, I'll find it for you. Okay. The other day, just this weekend, I was in a coffee shop in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, and I went in with my children to get a coffee and something, a snack for them, and a song was playing on the radio that I hadn't heard on the radio. I don't know if it was the radio. It was probably some sort of streaming service. (laughs) Um, And... It was a song that I only remembered from a tap dance performance when I was 11. Oh, my God. And instinctly, I'm at the cash and I start tap dancing. Like, not major breakout, like doing like the wings. windmill. No. <laughs> I just started, like, tapping my feet because this song to me is only, you know, it's called Downtown. I mean, everyone knows this oh, yeah. song. But it's only associated in my mind with tap dancing. And so it's like Pavlov's dog. Like, you start oh, yeah. to drool. I just started to tap dance the second the song came on. I couldn't not. That's amazing. <laughs> Another thing people might not know is that you have your own production company. That's true. Um, in 2014, I founded a production company with a very close friend and business partner. Her name is Samantha Hanks. And she and I have been working for now, you know, five, almost six years almost um, in various ways on women-focused food content. And, um, you know, even from then till now, the idea of content has changed so, so much. And the opportunity for content has changed so much, whether it's um, digital, um, whether it's like streaming, whether it's broadcast, podcast, 
um, all the casts. Oh my God. And so, you know, our main focus was that then we saw a whole of how there are still so few women's voices in the food space, amazingly. And of course, now the whole world is well aware, especially, you know, with this recent um, Oscar nomination yeah. round, that it is still like a gaping hole in the entertainment landscape. I mean, in many landscapes, but entertainment is so visual. Um, and in the food entertainment landscape, for sure, it is still you know, a very male-dominated place. We have a lot of work to do. And so Samantha and I are constantly trying to find vehicles for female talent and not only to find new female talent in the space, but to create content um, for female viewers because the more viewers, the more voices who want to see more females and it all sort of works together. So we are, you know, working hard on a number of shows. We have two shows in development. We made a show for the Food Network. We have a podcast in the works, and we're just trying to, um, you know, keep it going, spread the word, and get more women's voices out there in the food space that we love so much. I mean, that's what you're doing actively as well with your upcoming project with The Good Dish, if yes, you wouldn't mind right. sharing some sure. information about that. Um, the Good Dish is um, a potential project. I, I hope it will come to light very soon, but it's part of, um, the idea is a spinoff of the dish on Oz, which right now is the Wednesday food segment on the Dr. Oz show. I've been working with them for several months now, um, Dr. Oz and his daughter Daphne, as well as Vanessa Williams, who's an extraordinary talent. And I mean, there's nothing that woman can Love do. Her. And Jamaica Pessoa, who is um, an amazing sort of caterer to the stars and television personality. And the four of us are doing this show that we hope to launch in September which will be sort of the next iteration of daytime talk show, really focused on food, focused on tips and tricks to make cooking easier and ultimately to get dinner on the table for your family every night of the week. Because that's a very real problem. Or it's not a problem, problem for, but I mean, everybody. For everyone. Every single person I know, whether you have four kids or none or you're, you know, you know, anywhere on that spectrum of I still need to eat, I still need to feed my family or my partner or my life or my dog, and I'm bored of what I'm eating, but I don't have time because no one has time. So how do we make it fun and positive and enjoyable and have a focus on wellness, but not get caught up in wellness with a capital W and right. just make it good for you, good for your mind and your spirit and your soul? I am curious to know, I mean, with all this travel and you have a full plate in terms of your work projects, what do you like to do to decompress and what are some self-care rituals that you might? Uh, besides uh, watching The Crown? <laughs> basically, all I want to do is watch The Crown. No, um, what do I do? I, a lot. I mean, really just having quiet time with my family um, is so sacred. You know, my weekends are sacred to us. And and travel is how I decompress. I mean, traveling for work isn't always relaxing and traveling with children isn't always relaxing. <laughs> but it's where I find my, you know, my favorite moments for sure. Um, and then just, I mean, decompressing. I, I, do I ever decompress? No, it's not true. I do. I think that it's really about just making time for little things, staying home. I mean, as I said, my family's not a morning family. So weekends are not about getting up and going anymore. I, I I once in a while get that feeling of like, oh, we're wasting our day, but I'm over it now, you know, especially as a mom. Same. We stay in our PJs until noon and that is great. And we have no problem with that in my family. Um, 
And I would so much rather be like coloring on the coffee table with my daughter in my pajamas on a Saturday than doing kind of anything else. And I think that's what's important to know that, yes, we go, go, go all week, but that it's not always about sort of having to make the most of every second. There's, yeah. there's time to just chill. And, Knowing to and just be, be a normal. And, yeah. yeah. We do a lot of that. You do also have other passion projects. I know you work with great organizations like Hot Bread Kitchen yeah. and City Harvest. I do. I mean, I don't think there's a person in the food world who doesn't give back. That's what's so amazing about the restaurant industry in general is it's an incredibly generous place. And um, I feel so fortunate to get to do what I do and eat what I eat. Uh, but certainly there's a lot of ways that I can uh, use my voice and my experience to help others either who don't have that great fortune or who need, um, you know, a guidance or or a way or an opportunity to to show their best selves. So Hopper Kitchen's an organization I've been working with. I've been on the board for eight years at least. It's a New York City organization that gives women and minorities um, training and work opportunities in the restaurant and food space, specifically around food prep and service that started out with baking bread, which That's is right. why it's called Hot Bread Kitchen. And it still makes wholesale and retail breads uh, that are incredible. Um, but its model has gotten far beyond that. It also has a food incubator for young Brand. food startups and brands. Um, and it now trains hundreds of women who are either minorities, immigrants, and living in um, underserved areas of New York City um, the opportunity to get trained and find full-time work in the food space. Well, you've always been so generous with your time and your skills, and I can't wait to see oh, what comes down the pike thank in you. terms of this ongoing project. But I can't thank you enough for a swing by. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always great to talk to you. And please come back anytime. I will. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Gail. Thank you so much for listening to Chowhound's Table Talk. Keep up with the latest on our site, chowhound.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on social. Thank you.